Well, what happened to the snake? Stick around for a few minutes and you'll find out as we follow up on the past Sunday's message and dig a little deeper into the passage that was just preached. My name is David Miller and I am the pastor of membership here in McGregor and this is Beyond the Notes. This past Lord's Day is a great example of too many words and too little time. The passage that I was given in 2 Corinthians was a bit beefier than what could be covered in 35 minutes, and I didn't get to spend as much time on the last point of my message as I wanted to. As I said on Sunday, the Apostle Paul is actually in a conflict with the Corinthian church at this time. They're kind of upset with him because his plans have changed and he won't be able to visit them like he was originally going to do. His previous visit to them was a painful one for them and him because he needed to rebuke them for some blatant sin that was going on in the church at that time. But as he now writes 2 Corinthians, and specifically as he wraps up our passage from Sunday in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, he really shows a very kind level of compassion to that church. And specifically in verse 4, Paul serves sort of as an example to the church, showing the Corinthians and us today the proper attitude that we as believers should have towards people who are in sin. Let me just read that one verse to you in verse 4, which we didn't get to cover very much. It says this, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, Not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. Paul kind of puts a very sweet bow on a contentious issue, while at the same time sort of teaching them how to, um, we are to approach those who profess Christ, but are in blatant sin. And what I didn't get to do on Sunday was break down verse 4, so I want to do that. He says, first of all, for I wrote to you out of much affliction. The word affliction here in the Greek comes from a root word that means pressure. So when we think about affliction here, it seems to be like an oppressive uh, persecution against the Apostle Paul. And by God's grace, he was willing to take those arrows of the criticism that those in the church at Corinth were throwing his way, even, even to such an extent that they were criticizing his reliability and questioning his integrity. But the folks in that church were attacking him. Even so, he had the maturity uh, in that very moment to still be an example to them of somebody who faithfully loves other people, even when those other people are sinning against him. As I said Sunday, sounds a lot like Jesus. Anguish of heart, he says, um, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart. This is another strong phrase. And the great Baptist theologian A.T. Robertson describes Paul's condition here as spiritual angina. I love that because it's so apropos because, again, the Greek word that translates into anguish here means contraction. So the heart of the Apostle Paul hurts over the conflict he's having with the Corinthian church. And his heart hurts over the blatant sin in their church that they initially sort of turned a blind eye to. So... 
again, he says um, that uh, he, I wrote to you out of much affliction with anguish of heart and with many tears. Again, we know from verse 4 and other places in the New Testament that Paul was a compassionate man. We can tell this from his, his writings, specifically his letters, that he's an emotional guy. The Bible tells us that he wrote Philippians, um, specifically weeping over the enemies of the cross. And in Acts chapter 20, he mentions his own tears as he says goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And here in 2 Corinthians, he wrote with many tears. See, if Paul didn't give a rip, he wouldn't be acting this way, but he loves the people in this church, and he's explicit about that in the very last part of verse 4 when he says, I wrote to you not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. The word for love there is agape. And around here at McGregor, we have a fairly common definition of agape, and that is it is an unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to another person's well-being. In today's culture, love is a feeling. It is sheer emotion. But according to Scripture, love is not just a feeling. It's a commitment. Actually, agape is covenant love. And for those of us whom God has saved, we're to love others as God has loved us. And that is an unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to another person's well-being. And I think there are two immediate applications for what Paul says here in verse 4. One is parenting. And many of us that have been privileged to be blessed with kids, we understand the need for tough love at times. And that's what Paul is actually showing to this church family. Because he knows the depth of his own sin, Paul does not take the sin of other believers lightly, nor should we. Even when it's our kids, or how about especially when it's our kids? As parents, there are times where you and I have to show tough love to our children. We either enact consequences for their sin, or we give them instructions that they don't like, or we make decisions on their behalf that don't make them feel all warm and fuzzy. But doing those things are most definitely in their best interest. Again, it's a self-sacrificial commitment to another person's well-being. But I think the second application of verse 4 is church discipline. Church discipline, uh, the, specifically the process for our church, is laid out in our church's constitution. But it is derived primarily from uh, what Jesus explained to his disciples in Matthew chapter 18, verses uh, 15 through 20. Jesus says that there are four steps that we are to take in a local church when one person sins against another. Step one is that the offended party goes to the person who has sinned against them in an effort to reconcile by asking them to repent. And, and the onus is on the person sinned against. Why would that be? Well, because you and I are so depraved that we might even not realize we've sinned against another person. Now, if the offender repents in step one, the two people are reconciled and we're done. And we praise God for that reconciliation. But if there's no repentance, step two, the offended party takes one or two others to go with them to that same person who has sinned in order to reconcile by asking them again to repent. And if the offender repents, the two people are reconciled. And again, we praise God for what he's done. And the process is over. But if there's still no repentance after step two, step three, Jesus says, Matthew 18, tell it to the church. 
Notice in the first two steps that we've already talked about, Jesus keeps the circle of people who know about this sin small. And that's by design. Uh, and it's done so in an effort to foster the offender's repentance. Because if you and I immediately tell a thousand people on Facebook about another Christian's sin, the odds of them repenting are small, slim to none, actually. But if we do it privately in person as step one and step two command, there's a much better chance for repentance. So after much prayer and time is given for the offender to repent, if step one and two fail, the whole church in step three is now informed about the matter. So now what happens is the positive peer pressure of the body of Christ in a local church reaches out to that person and lovingly calls them to repentance. And if there's repentance, we praise God for that, and the person is reconciled to the church family. But if there's no repentance, in step four, Jesus says, treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector, meaning that our relationship with that person, the offender, the one who has sinned, that relationship will change because due to their unrepentant sin, we can no longer vouch for their test testimony. They're acting as a lost person would act. So we are to treat them as such and appeal to them now in step four on the basis of the gospel because evidently that's what they need. This is the step of excommunication. We, meaning the congregation, make the decision to put the unrepentant person out of the church. They're no longer a member. They're no longer in communion with the fellowship of the church. And they're no longer welcome at the Lord's table to, to take communion. They're always welcome at the church to come and hear the gospel preached in our weekly gathering, but our posture towards them has now changed because their life is demonstrating that they love their sin more than they love their Savior. So their testimony says one thing, but their life demonstrates the exact opposite. Therefore, we can no longer vouch for their testimony. And that's at the heart of what church membership is. For a long time in our church here at McGregor, we were disobedient in the area of church discipline. We either didn't do it at all, or if we did it, we didn't do it as Jesus prescribed how to do it in Matthew 18. But since our constitution was revised in 2016, we do it now. And we've only done it a handful of times where it's gotten to the point of excommunication. And it's always been done slowly, patiently, prayerfully toward the goal of repentance, and it's done with a heavy heart. Very similar to the attitude Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 2.4. And that's the point of me sharing this second application, because the goal of church discipline is reconciliation, not to gleefully kick somebody out of the church. And the proper attitude that we're to have towards those who profess Christ, but who are involved in public, grievous, and unrepentant sin is precisely how Paul describes his posture towards those at Corinth. I want to read it to you again from verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Sometimes love must be tough, and that's true for children, and it's true for members of a local church as well. So I think that wraps up our podcast for today. Wait, 
Just kidding. Just kidding. I know, I know, I know. I need to answer the teaser question that began the podcast, which was, what happened to the snake? That was the number one question I was asked on Sunday after each service. And it was because of the true story that I told about trying to get a snake out of our, our bedrooms a little over a week ago now. And the answer to the question is, I don't know what happened to the snake. We never found it. I think it went under the wall in a gap between the floor and the baseboard, but honestly, it could be anywhere in our house. Now, I did sleep in our bedroom that night, but assuredly my wife did not. And I will tell you that the significance of a snake being the means of my temptation into sin that evening is not lost on me. There's a lot of symbolism and a lot of providential irony in all of that. And that definitely wraps up our Beyond the Notes podcast for this week. Thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed this, or even if you didn't, smash the like button, hit the subscribe button, and share this podcast with somebody that matters to you. You can also feel free to give us a review because we'd love to have your feedback. Oh, and before we go, uh, if you want to be ready for next Sunday's sermon, we will be continuing in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 11. So feel free to read ahead. God bless and have a great week. Thank you.